So we are in week two of our stewardship campaign. Stewardship campaigns are the time of the year when folks skip church. Let's just call it what it is. It's a time of year when we talk about the finances of the church. We talk about giving our financial resources, the things that, the treasures that we work so hard, nine to five, to earn and to, to, to keep for ourselves. It's that time of year. And in week two of our stewardship campaign, Jesus, in our reading from Matthew's gospel, is being questioned about taxes. Since taxes are levied by the government, in Jesus' case, the Roman Empire, Jesus is being pushed into a corner, being asked to make a political statement. So for us this morning in week two of our stewardship campaign, we have two of the three things that Christians don't like to talk about on Sunday mornings, smashed together into one sermon. It's going to be great. We've got politics and money together. All we need is for Jesus to say something, to say anything about sex, and we will have the no-go trifecta of preaching. Before I continue, though, I want to make a note to everyone that when Jesus says, right after he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God, four chapters later, which seems like a lot, but in reality it was just a few days later, Jesus was arrested and crucified. So as I navigate the financial and political type wire that Jesus has strung for us this morning, My prayer is that I do better than he did. On Thursday afternoon, during my ethics class, which is titled Power, Sex, and Money, a classmate asked me during a group discussion about Christian sexual ethics if the mainline church preached and taught about things like sex and money. At first, my response was laughter, but when that wasn't good enough, I cleared my throat and said that I did not recall Jesus specifically addressing sex in his ministry, but that our stewardship campaign was going on, and we were in the second week. So two, or one out of two, isn't that bad, right? Jesus does talk about money. His ministry begins with the declaration of jubilee, a time when all debt was to be forgiven. And if you want to overlook the jubilee declaration saying, Jesus really didn't know what he was talking about, we can go back to the beginning of the gospel story altogether, to eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus in his golden fleece diapers. Does anybody know why Mary at nine months pregnant, was traveling? A census to calculate a tax levied by Caesar Augustus, which was to be paid by Israel living under Roman occupation. Mary and Joseph were returning to Joseph's hometown to be counted. On the other end, on the back end of the gospel story, we have Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom of God had come, which meant that now Jesus a rival king to Caesar, threatened a tax system 
that the Roman occupying empire relied so heavily on. Whether we like it or not, Jesus' ministry then and continuing today has financial implications for those aligning themselves with his ministry. The Pharisees and the Herodians are strange bedfellows. When we dive deeper into the story, we learn that the Pharisees did not like their Roman occupiers. They were orthodox in belief. You could call them Hebrew Bible-believing observers of God's law and God's commandments. The Herodians, though, they supported the Roman occupation. Yeah, they had to pay things like taxes to their occupiers, but Rome brought roads and a sanitation system, and water, and stability, and a huge military to protect everyone. They feared Jesus would bring about a revolution, which a revolution, by the way, that had happened a generation prior, pushing the Greeks out and allowing space for the Romans to come in, ruining what they, the Herodians, saw as good living and stability. They would turn on Jesus in a heartbeat if he threatened or provoked any sort of change for them. Imagine for a second, let me put this in context for us today. Imagine the extreme right of the Republican Party and the extreme left of the Democrat Party coming together and working together. That's what's happening in our story this morning. And the question that they pose to Jesus it was, they didn't care what the answer was. They wanted ammunition to get rid of him. The question presented, does the law, does the law, which law, Roman law or Jewish law, allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus answers no on one hand, he will be uh, guilty of treason, arrested, and crucified If he says yes, the Pharisees will use that answer to prove that he was a false prophet, derailing his entire ministry. Jesus is being put into an impossible situation. Pick a side, Jesus. Who are you going to be with? Are you going to be with the temple or are you going to be with Rome? But then Jesus asks for a coin. And then asks the question, whose image and inscription is this? When he asks this question, the third way that no one saw possible appears. Jesus, in that moment, shows the true intentions of those confronting him. The word Jesus used for image is icon. That's the same word. That was used at the beginning of Genesis when it says that we were all, all of us here this morning, all of us in creation, everyone ever created by God, that we are made in God's image. We are icons of God. The response Jesus receives from the Pharisees and the Herodians of Caesar Sets Jesus up with, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. But what we miss in our English translation is that Jesus is really saying, pay back to Caesar what he deserves, what belongs to him. 
and pay back to God what God deserves or what belongs to God. It's important for us to note that the Pharisees viewed the Roman tax to be heretical. The denarius was the equivalent of a quarter. It's not that the tax was a burden. It's that the tax itself was offensive. Carrying that coin, the only coin that could be used to pay the tax, that coin had on it the icon, the image and name of Caesar Tiberius with the inscription, Son of God, our great high priest. That inscription put Jews in a really hard place. Because if we are like the Pharisees, we remember with our Hebrew Bibles in hand that in Exodus chapter 20, it says, You shall have no other God before me. Anyone, any Jew who carried that coin was ritually unclean. And because of that, that coin could never be carried into the temple. Which is why there are money changers outside of the temple grounds profiting on Jews who needed to, who were required by the laws of the empire to exchange their currency before they could enter the temple into worship. So now, if we are to pay back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and pay back to God what belongs to God, what are we going to give back to God? If Caesar deserves his money back because it has his image and his name on it, what does God deserve? Everything. Jesus was telling the right and left wings of the synagogue that you give Caesar what bears his image. But that while Caesar can require a specifically engraved coin to be used to pay a tax, you cannot pay him with something that God has already laid claim to. God has already stamped each and every one of you as icons of God. When reading this story, we run the risk of mixing up God and Caesar We read it and we immediately think that Jesus' response is about trying to figure out the dollar amount that we owe to God and then the dollar amount that we owe to Caesar. Is it 10% before or after taxes? Can I leave out my investment returns? Because I don't know what those are really going to be. Jesus was only talking about my W-2, right? We want to come up with two numbers. And chances are we fear that the number we choose to give to God will dwarf in comparison to what we are owed to pay Caesar. While the U.S. Mint has stamped God onto our currency, the only thing God has stamped an image on is you and me. Pay back to God what God deserves. Give to God what belongs to God. We are all image bearers of God. We bear the image of a loving, forgiving, and gracious God. Perhaps what we owe to God is grace and generosity. The same grace and generosity that's extended to each of us, regardless of the calculations required to determine what we owe to Caesar and the corruption that's outside the temple gates that we are forced to be a part of and trade our dirty money. As image bearers of God, God does not want a meticulously counted return. 
God does not want you to split hairs over itemized deductions. God wants all of us. Yes, God wants all of us here in the communal sense, in the Mount Olivet community sense, but God also wants all of each and every one of you. God wants you individually committed to the kingdom Jesus proclaimed was here now when he announced the presence of the Jubilee. Remember, Jesus did not say that there were two distinct realms, the religious and the secular, and that we owe equal fidelity to both of them. He said, pay back what is theirs, God and Caesar. When we give ourselves fully to the kingdom of God, we become fully invested in the ministry Jesus began over 2,000 years ago. Being fully invested means that we are just as committed to keeping the lights on and the toilet paper stocked as we are about new organs or building renovations or international mission trips. It means that our lives are committed to the ministry that is happening inside this church every single day. Church buildings, like Mount Olivet, a large church building, are often viewed as financial liabilities. Large buildings require maintenance. They are expensive to heat. People leave lights on and the water running. And they can seem as though they are cared for the purpose of serving the social club church on Sunday mornings. But that mindset, the social club Sunday morning church, does not have a vision of the kingdom of God. This church building, Mount Olivet, is a hub of community activity from early in the morning, try 6 a.m. until late at night. Part of the ministry of Mount Olivet is to provide spaces for church groups to meet. Yes, and I'm not trying to diminish the work those groups do. But this is also a place where our community gathers. From preschool and scout groups to a chess club, neighborhood association boards, recovery groups, groups of people who are actively working to help refugees as they come to our country. All of them are blessed by the day-to-day operations of Mount Olivet. On Friday, I asked Tina to give me a rough calendar count of all of the groups, every group that meets at our church, outside of the normal day-to-day churchy stuff that we do. 17 different groups meet here. That's more than two per day. So keeping the lights on at Mount Olivet is more than just paying back to Dominion Power what the electric meter tells us that we owe them. Keeping the lights on at Mount Olivet is about providing a safe and illuminated parking lot where divorced parents can meet on neutral turf to hand off their kids to one another on Wednesday nights. Keeping the lights on at Mount Olivet means we are fully invested in the ministry happening in our community. Being fully invested means that we care about the little things just as much as we care about the big, sexy church ministries. Keeping the lights on at Mount Olivet is an opportunity to ensure that this faith community remains a light to the community around us, to Waycroft Woodlawn, but also into Boston and Clarendon and Arlington and across the river into D.C.,
We keep the lights on. Because we are returning ourselves to the one whose icon was stamped onto our lives when we were formed in our mother's wombs. And to the same image that was stamped onto our lives when we died to ourselves in the waters of our baptism. We keep the lights on because we have not mixed up God and Caesar. As image bearers of God's love and forgiveness and grace. All we can pay back to God is what God has already given us, giving God everything. Amen.